This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Rose and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, call them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I'm talking to John Grindrod, who is safely indoors in... Well, where are you, John? Well, I am staying with my partner in Milton Keynes at the moment. Uh, So the video link I sent you was for Signs of the Times, that little bit different, which was first shown on BBC Two on the 2nd of February 1992. So before you'd even watched the programme, what was your reaction to that choice? Um, I thought it sounded great. I thought I might have seen it, but I couldn't quite remember. So at the time, I would have been... I would have been a student studying media production at Bournemouth Polytechnic. So in theory, I was supposed to be like really, really like watching all of this stuff. But I have a feeling I didn't watch it. I, I, I'm, unless I've got some kind of false memory about it. <laughs> and did it feel familiar to you when you saw it? Oh, well, I mean, it feels familiar just partly because the that world... It's a familiar but lost world, the world that it shows in the programme. It's it's a bizarre sort of moment in British history, 1991, when it was filmed. And they've captured it amazingly, the programme. So, yeah, even even if I don't remember the actual programme being on, actually, it brought back a load of memories of that John Major era quite strongly. just give us a brief talk through what the programme is about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so it's part of a series and uh, in each episode uh, they interview people about their houses that they live in and their homes. I don't think decorating is a substitute for sex, but I get a big thrill out of seeing a room come to life. The interviews are there's usually eight or nine, usually couples, but there's mothers and daughters in a different episode and there's all sorts of different variations of people in each episode. And I didn't want to be the same as everybody else. And this particular episode is called That Little Little Bit Bit Different. Different. And the idea here is that everybody in this programme wants to show off their unique style and how they are rebelling against the norm or how they are not, not, you know, not doing what they think everyone else is doing, they're doing something different. Everybody thinks they have good taste, it's just one of those things. I think if you have a, I mean, places with deep shag pile nylon carpets and purple and orange, most people would agree that that was bad taste as such, or pink plastic bath. But of course the thing that immediately strikes you when you see, see everybody is that everybody's doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. It's a very funny, um, super ironic documentary that was a complete mistake it's out of place no matter where you put it it's well, even I worse in been... the middle of the room excuse me Nori, i hardly think that would look out of place it's because the whole place is all cluttered up with furniture martin parr did this photography project off the back of the program and went round with the crew and photographed all the people so the programme itself apes the kind of Martin Parr style of domestic voyeurism. 
and uh, and so we just see these people in their domestic settings and they tell us about their individual houses and, and homes and uh, why they think they're better than everyone else or why they think they're worse than everyone else depending on <laughs> the self-esteem of the different couple if someone came and looked through the the keyhole um, into this sort of room they would see people who like um, old values they are taste and classy and, and good um, I don't think we'd have anything brash and trash for, for the sake of being that I think there is uh, that sense that they are all beautifully written little dramas about the people as mm. much as their homes I mean they definitely feel quite Alan Bennett in that if you want to talk about the small dramas of everyday lives you know you rather than talking about the drama you talk about the curtains or the the coffee table or the whole project feels slightly mean-spirited I don't know I know that these people applied to be on the program but it does feel like it observes them with a really kind of lizardy eye the style of it you know is so it's so Brittard you know I mean it is so yeah. ironic and steeped in really, really heavy irony. And these people are clonked before us with no, there's no narration. There's no, um, there are no captions. There's nothing, there's no information about these people. They're just plonked before us. They start talking about their houses and the way that they live. And we're supposed to be able to keep up with that. But, um, but it feels like, it feels like we're thrown straight into deliberate clashing awkward collisions between different you know different couples and the way that they've arranged throughout the program means that you get people slagging off the people that have come before or after that's when kate harlow my interior designer came in to help us i don't really uh, like the idea of using an interior designer it seems um seems a bit pathetic really because they're slagging off that kind of life that they're reacting against in some ways. I'm really interested, though, in that, I suppose, in the whole idea of a little bit different uh, and that choice to get people to dwell on uniqueness and the extent to which that involves a sort of sense of superiority. So all the participants are in some way being quite damning of someone else or a different kind of style. More or less, most people's houses are very, very similar. I don't want to be the same as anyone else. People like to think they can criticise you. Yeah, we want to set our own standards so nobody else has got what we've got. I mean, places with deep shag pile nylon carpets and purple and orange, most people would agree that that was bad taste as such, or pink plastic baths or something like flock, that. Flock wallpaper. Even if you had a bounty castle in your, in your garden, then that would be totally a persona non grata type situation satellite dishes. Right fluorescent lights in the kitchen, that sort of thing. I mean, I don't think many people could live with that. But to me, the most awful thing are coasters lying on good bits of furniture. I don't think I'd like one of these horrific um, uh, jugs which um, are like cottages because I think they're, they're grotesque. I'm not mad about things that are overtly high-tech either. I think that that was a real sort of Look of the bachelor pad of the 80s. Yes, granite and metal. And um, it's now terribly passé. Like, yes, like your Dexian unit. <laughs> but we're not going to keep that forever. Well, so it no. serves its purpose at the moment. Again, it serves its purpose, which is to hold a television.
first couple, Sue and Terry, uh, a lot of their aspirations for the home seem very bound up in leaving behind the fact it's a council house that they've bought from her parents. But it just wasn't airtight, so we just completely changed it. Plus, your dad was a little bit colourblind anyway, isn't he? Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? That desire to tear everything down and change it and uh, and deny the past in a way. And actually, class is a real thing that comes throughout all of these. I mean, partly because so many of the people that they've interviewed in this particular episode are either really rich or really posh or a combination of the two. And there were only really a couple, two or three working class couples out of that eight. And that sort of really tips the balance in terms of the sorts of difference that they're reacting against. Yeah, it, it's, it feels like the whole programme is incredibly class-loaded, isn't it? There's a sort of Islington couple, isn't there? Um, but, you know, mainly they are either suburban or I guess the incredibly posh couple are probably in a crumbling pile in the countryside in the middle of nowhere, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they, they conform to that stereotype of, um, you know, having all these beautiful things in terrible... Repair. I think things are much better when they're shabby and cracked. Um, if you took all the drapes off that sofa over there, you would find it the most appalling condition underneath. But their idea of the superiority of their taste is very bound up again in oldness and inheritance. They seem like the, the undertow of their entire conversation seems to be about that having new things is incredibly gauche. Something which is too perfect and too new strikes me as being uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like it. it I'm quite happy with if it's, if it's cracked and been discreetly screwed and glued together again. All the way through their bit, they were talking about, oh, you know, preserving this for the future and you don't want to change things and you want to keep it going. And at the same time, they clearly can't be bothered to keep anything going and it's all just falling to shit. Well, yeah, and I think Jane and Ray, they're, they're the real high watermark of the aspirational... Era. I feel I'm proud of my house. Everything that we've done is exclusive, isn't it? Yes. There's nothing that you'd probably see in another house. Mm. Um, but mm. also, what is the driver and their compulsion to keep buying things? So then we thought, well, let's go and see if we can buy next door. Because there seems like an emotional, the thing is not about what the thing is about, that utter relentlessness yeah. of having to change the house. When we had a new carpet, we had to have a new suite because the suite didn't go with the carpet. There is a bit of you that goes, what What if it's not the house that's sad? Yeah, it's a bit like ever-decreasing circles with the spare room, isn't it? The office, it was going to be a child's bedroom. It's a constantly little sad thing that happens all the time. It feels like Jane and Ray, there is something like that going on. It's clearly, they're clearly like massively overcompensating, aren't they, in some way? I guess one of the things about the programme is you don't see the context of these people's lives. I think the last couple, Moira and Trevor, you see their kids, but I don't think you see anyone else with kids. I sort of wonder sometimes whether that context has been deliberately removed. I don't know, make them feel more like a bubble, or whether actually there just wasn't anyone else. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I am also interested, do you remember those Kingdom of Leather places. I'll keep going back to Kingdom of Leather because the quality's there. But it's I... all designer stuff they do, it's not stuff that the run-of-the-mill people would have in their homes. Were you dragged around furniture, furniture showrooms and garden centres? Did you have those existential Sundays in retail establishments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I guess the first thing I remember is before Sunday opened, 
going around and looking through windows of shops like that. My mum and dad would go out window shop, actual proper window shopping where you couldn't go in because it was shut and kind of looking at stuff and, you know, and it all being a dream of, oh, we could do this or we could do that. I do remember that moment in the early 80s where suddenly it was things like going to MFI. In the MFI sale, it's your last chance for thousands of bargains. Buying a load of, like, melanin cupboards and... And then we just had so many sofas. Just remember that you're shopping at a store that is stocking an amazing 60,000 sweets a year that sells a different item every second, so it's reckoned. Tables, chairs and loads of other mind-expanding gear. And we did so many, we had so many different wallpapers and so many, and my, my mum, a bit like Jane in this, get, would get really bored. Ugh. You know, oh, here we go. And actually, another thing that really reminded me was in the first one, uh, Sue and Terry. Terry has basically bodged their fireplace. He's created oh, a kind yeah, of... Oh, yeah, talk to us a bit about that. <laughs> yeah, he's created this kind of amazing sort of stone fireplace, and he's done one side of the... He hasn't done the chimney breast, but he's done one side of it, the alcove on one side, but he hasn't done the other one. I think it draws the eye more than having both sides. That's right, because people think, oh, one side, and they automatically look at the other side, but it's not there. It just hangs there as this odd, as this odd thing, as if it's, you know, sapphire and steel or something, you know, there is a kind of supernatural element to this thing that they're looking at that they're not talking about. And I remember my dad, he knocked out our fireplace. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't meant to in a council house. Um, and he built a big stone fireplace and shelves out of these, but they were those those stone sort of pretend bricks that you would get for building an outside wall where you would have like a big sort of breeze block with, say, like five different stones imprinted on the sort of pattern of those. So they were totally unsuitable to be in a house. And because my, my dad was, a, I mean, he became a handyman and he was like Mr. Bodge. I mean, he would bodge everything. So one of the things that I was really, really noticed in this is how perfect a lot of these houses are compared to the absolute like bodged up mess that I grew up in. I would say our home is the second most important thing in our lives after our daughter and so we do get a buzz from showing it off to other people. So I guess that takes us to Lisa and Neil as well that there's a heavy Laura Ashley influence in there oh. uh, with the cherubs in the bed can you talk to me a little bit oh. about your take on their choices. They are like the high watermark of postmodernism in this programme, you know, which was obviously the big like architectural style of that moment. And they they've imposed this massively ostentatious references to the past, loads of symmetrical, crazy symmetry going on everywhere. Really, really overstuffed with these great big symmetrical items of furniture in this what looks like quite a small flat. The home that I grew up in mainly was a large kind of Tudor house with Colfax and Fowler flowers and birds and dreadful things like that all over the walls. And I think now that we've moved here, our style and taste has d developed. Got better. Yeah, definitely. Grown up. Her taste is quite bound up again in explaining how it's superior to her parents in their stately mm. home. 
Yeah, constantly, constant, constant reference to that. I think I've moved away in a big way from the kind of decor that I grew up with. Mm. There is a sort of slight thing in this makeup of the programme where they've asked people to talk about how how their place is different. And some people have interpreted that as a way of punching down or having a row with the world, you know. And some people have, have actually talked about it in a more personal slightly soul-searching soul way. And um, there were two couples, there were them. Uh, there was Lucy and Alexander, who crop up a bit later in the programme, who um, are sort of some kind of media couple that live uh, in a very sparse, uh, very aesthetic flat in uh, or house in Islington. I don't think that we've decorated this flat for the um, purposes of impressing other people, but if other people come in, then I suppose I would like them to think that we've got um, reasonably good taste and that they're not going to see anything that they think is terribly vulgar or ostentatious. And both of them spend all of their time talking about how awful everyone else's taste is. Um, <laughs> and they don't really very much talk about the things that they've got. They Instead, they just talk endlessly about how terrible everyone else is. Ghastly ranch-style houses. Yeah. Ghastly ideas that of feeling that every single year you have to have a new scene. Showing off their money, but in a really awful way. They can't stop themselves, you know, revealing more and more of how much they hate other people um, as it goes through. It's quite difficult to watch a couple of these interviews. I've sort of found it quite uncomfortable at times. They talk about Antiques Roadshow, don't they? How Antiques Roadshow has ruined antiques. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I felt like Alexander felt a bit like he was played by Rhys Shearsmith. Would you say you're a fairly egregious person? <gasps> that was totally what we were saying. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, besides which, I mean, I don't think that you have... I don't think that you have to change your decoration very often anyway. I, I think it's crazy the way some people are constantly redecorating just for the sake of it. By the end of it, I felt like each of these little setups could have been an inside number nine like, waiting to happen. Um, they all feel like, you know, that they're, they're a kind of very funny black comedy. I mean, there's little things where you wonder as well how much the production team did come into the house as is and how much there's a bit of a, like, can you just put that yeah. there? Because I think, particularly with Isabel and Alistair, the couple who are proudly conservative and obviously aspire mm. to... They've got a suburban semi in Glasgow in, like, a very well-to-do, very genteel bit of Glasgow, mm. and they obviously aspire to the, you know, stately home level of class but they're very I just wonder that they, they're having all this conversation about the quality of their taste with a massive delft clog on the coffee table <laughs> yeah there's a very very awkward shot for ages of Isabel with a brass standard lamp I like the brass standard lamp it takes a lot of polishing but it's nice when it's shining and a little bit different um with with a really ratty bit of um, bit of wire sticking out of it, and she's just standing there for ages, looking really awkward. And the whole thing, you just it's almost impossible to watch because it's it's sort of meaningless. It's a sort of slightly meaningless shot because it's not really telling you very much. But actually, it's one of the things you most remember from the whole program by the end of it because it's you just linger on it for ages, really unnecessarily ages. And I guess that is the kind of Martin Parr bit coming out. And I think actually it's interesting because it, as a documentary, it feels almost like stage drama. It doesn't 
feel very natural. Yeah, and I guess there is that thing in this episode, they, the idea of difference, fundamentally, they're being asked to talk about, you know, what sets them apart from other people. So there's a bit of an yeah. impossibility there about, you know, talking about one's own taste in a way that doesn't also talk about what one rejects, I guess. You would never be able to make this programme now. Now, you know, I spend a lot of my time going around interviewing people in their houses, talking about, you know, mm. the places that they live. And I would hope that I would never portray people in this cold, odd way, you know, this heavily ironic way. It feels like sort of a peculiar, careless thing to do to other people's lives, to do that to them. It feels like a product of that era where we decided we were post everything and that mm. everything could be ironic and dispassionate and, mm. and and I guess a product of that era of aspiration, you know, uh, uh, everyone pulled themselves up by their bootstraps or go, you know, anyone in a position, well, I suppose everyone's in the position they deserve to be or that kind of thinking. Yeah. One of the reasons I'm really, really glad that we watched this is... I am really, really obsessed with John Major's Britain. John Major is Britain's next Prime Minister. Michael Heseltine, 131. Douglas Hurd, 56. John Major, 185. A party election broadcast by the Conservative Party. This time next week, you will have made your decision. Either I'll be back in Downing Street or we'll have a Labour government. The peas are good tonight, dear. Because it feels like a bit of modern history that's slightly fallen off a cliff and everyone's forgotten about. But, you know, those great big, great big beige hatchbacks uh, knocking around city centres and, the, you know, everything being huge and square and oversized, but with no panache. Buildings that timidly attempting a vague gesture at the past, but not in a way that anyone might notice in case it offends them. And, and everything feeling slightly like those huge acrylic glasses that people used to wear a lot of, you know, including John Major. Um, that, you know, there were a lot of that slightly dreary style from that period has been forgotten and really interesting. And I guess at the time you'd live through moments like that and you forget them because they're not necessarily the jump out you know, exciting moments, but almost they're, they're more interesting because of it. And so this programme is brilliant because it really reminded me of a lot of detail um, that, that it's easy to forget through this passage of time quite how cluttered or over the top or full on or sort of joyfully, you know, exciting or just willfully weird people make their houses. So one of the things I was quite interested in, Isabel and Alistair, um, but he talks about the flying ducks and the Malaysian lady, so he obviously means the green mm. Trechikov. Um, and mm -hmm. that seems like the only thing that anybody mentions in the course of this particular episode where you're like, all right, that's come back round and it uh, denotes a very different thing now to what yes. it did then. Jean and Norris both wore furniture has all come back you know and Lucy, Lucy and Alexander the, the slightly kind of weird media Islington couple those slightly kind of shaker type 
furniture that they've got, I guess, feels a bit more timeless. There, I mean, you know, going to lots of people's houses, you know, they're still quite varied in the way that, you know, Jean and Norrie hadn't decorated since the 60s when this was made in the 90s. Those are people that hadn't decorated since this was made in the 90s, you know. So things accidentally linger, even if they don't, they don't necessarily hold their currency. A lot of the stuff in this programme hasn't gone away. It's still there. I mean, some of the pelmets have gone, like some of the chandeliers maybe, but I think actually... Some of those spotty sofas, you still do see them. You know, things do have their moment again, don't they? And you can't always predict what that's going to be. I guess it's partly a matter of what the next generation of, well, they're probably not going to be house buyers now, but house decorators, what they're nostalgic Mm. for. You know, it's probably only now that you have a generation of people with that nostalgia for something slightly on the verge of what they remember. So, you know, maybe the price of eternal... Bow crockery is gonna shoot up very soon. <laughs> All in good time. We go on drifting on dreaming dreams, telling lies. And actually I noticed in in this in Isabel and Alistair's house, that whole segment's like permeated by a clock ticking. That suddenly mm-hmm. made me go that like that noise isn't really part of our domesticity anymore, is it? In the way that no, it was. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people's houses would go in and they would have something ticking away in every room. Dreams telling lies, generally wasting our time. Suddenly it's too late. Time has come and can't wait. There's no more. My favourite couples, they kept them to the last two. It suddenly got a bit more emotional towards the end in a way that it hadn't really been for the rest of the programme. There's a, a fantastic couple we've talked about, a bit about before, Jean, Jean and Norrie. Their house is still full of things they got in 1961, which they now hate, and a load of weird offcuts of other things that they bought to try and modernise it in a really half-hearted way, none of which fits together. And now they're just sitting there in the kind of ruins of the of the house that they once had, really, not really knowing what to do, and then constantly having these weird arguments with one another while they're trying to put on a sunny face. We haven't done what you would say a lot of decorating, but we've put Julux on to brighten it up. Other than that, there's nothing being done to the house at all. And uh, we still have all there's, the... Excuse me, there's paper on these. Oh, yes, uh-huh. Uh, that, that's right. Sorry about that. The lounge well, the lounge and dining room, and that's the hallway, right. Hallway. Uh-huh. And the hallway. But other than that's that, the... there's been uh, uh, no papering done. We've just freshened up the walls. Yeah, they're quite terse with one another, aren't they? Excuse and get furniture to shoot uh, the carpet. <clears throat> Excuse me, excuse me, Maury, excuse me. Um, In that kind of very, very gritted teeth-based politeness. I don't know, I wonder, is that the point where you start to really think about it as a work of portraiture in some way? It suddenly felt like they were real people here rather than some of the other treatment of some of the other couples sort of has made them feel incredibly cartoonish. And and Jean and Norrie don't feel cartoonish. The only cartoon they would fit in would be Raymond Briggs, really. 
Oh, totally. They're so off that world. They, they're the ones where it feels like their conversation about the house contains negativity about their house. Well, it's quite, it's a really moving, moving segment, isn't it? You know, and I really liked them, even though they are cursed with one another. I really warmed to them as a couple because, you know, a lot of this episode is about aspiration. And they were kind of saying, you know, well, we just got a bit lost, really. We didn't really know what we were doing and we kept making mistakes. When we installed the carpet, we realised that it wasn't quite right for this type of house. But uh, there's nothing we could do about that. But the really sad thing about that is that they feel like they can't bring anyone ever back to the house, so they never have anyone round ever because they're ashamed of it. I just won't bring anyone in here. I just won't have it. I feel like some of the houses here are constructed to be these, you know, impressive places to bring people. And their one was a story of of how that hasn't worked out and they now feel ashamed. And that was the really sad, that was a very heartbreaking bit. Yeah, and they really made me think of, you know, the Philip Larkin poem, Home is So Sad. Oh, yeah. The joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. There's such a pall of melancholy over their house, isn't there? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, so many of these are, are like real kind of archetypal 80s, 90s designs and styles. It is a lot of that, you know, reference to the past, huge blousiness. I mean, you know, if you want to watch something with a lot of helmets and tiebacks, Watch this. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, we'll give Dynasty a run for its money on that front. Um, yeah, absolutely. But actually, there's also an interesting story about, you know, Gina Nori. You know, a lot of the stuff is stuck in 1961. You know, they talk about putting the carpet down in 1963 when Kennedy dies. You know, it very much kind of roots it in that post-war modernist thing. And then Sue and Terry are talking about, you know, wanting to change everything in the council house, forget the history of it and forget what it's like. And actually... So much of this is about forgetting that post-war period and everybody really super embracing this, this very blousy vision of consumerism. For a lot of reasons, I actually, Gina Norrie's place, which they hate, is probably my favourite. Uh, it's the one that I could live in. When you get to Moira and Trevor, they're in some ways this granita of joy where they've surrendered to the fact that they have no taste of their own. And they bought the show house with everything in it. When we first came down and saw the show house, we came for Sunday walk with the children and we both said, wow, fantastic house, what a superb house, just enormous. It was just a gorgeous, gorgeous house. We, we decided to buy it with all the furniture as well. We literally purchased everything, fixtures and fittings, and we could have moved in with just our suitcases. Yeah, I, I loved Moira and Trevor. So, yeah, they, I mean, they literally do buy this great big uh, Tudor Beetham uh, 80s house and keep everything. Their, their bit is amazing and also incredibly joyful. You know, they absolutely love it, but they're totally bewildered by what they've done. The kids keep coming and going, is this ours when we all the houses? And they go, no, we own everything. We own the house. It's all ours. Which I find astonishing. They don't seem to quite believe them, you know, that, that this is actually their life. Got 22 carat gold plated saucepans in the kitchen just hanging on the wall, not for use. Which is very funny. There's a fantastic bit where she talks about the dried flowers hanging upside down in the kitchen. So 
kept, which were in the show home. And I would love to think I was the sort of person who would have dried those flowers and hung them there myself, but I'm not, and I'm glad that somebody else has. And now I don't have to be that person. That bit is so amazing because where so much of the other aspiration seems like either is a negative projection onto other people and their taste or in Norrie and Jean, obviously they're working through some, you know, sad things about the coffee table that is representative of the fact that they're not those kind of people. She's like, I'm mm. not that kind of person, but it makes me feel like I am and it's delightful. And they keep calling things mega. Our friends... Well, they think it's mega like we do. They just think it's out of this world and they hate us and we love it. <laughs> In this incredibly yeah, endearing way, don't they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And she talks about the staircase being Dallasy. I love that. I would love a Dallasy staircase. Who wouldn't love a Dallasy staircase? I mean, you know, you would, you would have to really, really dress for the occasion, though, wouldn't you? A Dallasy staircase. <laughs> How did Signs of the Times, that little bit different, fit into your day? Did it cheer you up? Well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so I guess I thought it was going to be sort of jollier than it was. And actually, it was. I was surprised, actually, how bleak it was at times. It wasn't quite what I expected, um, but it's kind of brilliant. I mean, I'm really glad somebody has catalogued bits of people's daily lives from that period the thing that i feel sad about is that is how limited the pool of people seem to be that they've actually covered you just think you know there was so much going on at that time you could have chosen a much wider group of people they all seem to be straight white couples for the most part they're middle class on and with sort of upper class of straying i felt a bit sort of sad that it it was just very of its time in that respect the programme was trying to, to show us through the lens, you know, of the camera, this is what Britain was like at the time, through what the people are saying and the things in their houses. But I think inadvertently, through the way that the programme's made, that almost feels more of its time than the houses. How are you finding life during these strange times? <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? It's so weird. You know, I can't... I, I, I've been... So I've been staying with my partner in Milton Keynes. I live in South London in a flat. So I've been staying in, staying here. So I sort of trundled down with my suitcase, you know, just before lockdown and been here ever since. And it's odd not living in my own flat and having my own things around me. You know, it's... In some ways, it's been fine because I feel like a bit like the pro people in this program have been in a little bubble and I've been able to just get on in a micro way. But trying to process what's going on in the world or just trying to kind of keep keep some of the worst of that at bay is it's exhausting. It's exhausting at the moment, isn't it? I, I look around at people, I just think, you know, people are being so amazing. People are sort of, you know, coping so well considering the ridiculous scenario we're in i i i think you know we will look back and not believe that we managed to cope as well as we have
thank you for what you've said to the Times, that little bit different. And thank you for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Mm-hmm.